Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of the Geeking Off Podcast. Today, I'm drinking something that my wife picked up. It's called Not Your Father's Ginger Ale. So, con pie. Mm. Yeah, she was right. This does taste like crap. Computers, gaming, retro Today we got a new co-host. His name is Macrophiliac. We're going to call him Macro for short here on the show. So go ahead, say hi there, Macro. Hey guys, I'm Macrophiliac, Jared, technology enthusiast, and, you know, I'm ready to crack open some knowledge. Sweet, sweet. Were you a 90s kid? You remember this stuff? Oh, Surge, right? It's back at Walmart. Really? I'm going to have to go look that up. I have to check that out. And for a disclaimer of this episode, we are not going to be damning Linux whatsoever. We're just going to talk about, you know... Our thoughts on is Linux safe? That's our topic. We'll be talking about the Linux Mint hack and previous Linux vulnerabilities um, and basically how to stay safe online. So let's go ahead and get started with the Linux Mint hack. On February 20th, Linux Mint had their website hacked with a backdoor that was done through WordPress. They went ahead and modified a link to the Linux Mint Cinnamon Edition 17.3 ISO putting a kind of a, what do you say, a, not really a Trojan, but more of a, a botnet type DDoS attacker that's really, really old, and it got discovered really quick. This article I've been reading about it, uh, they call it Tsunami. They actually call it a Trojan, but Trojan would imply it's hiding as something else. Uh, but yeah, it's a botnet client, and they were able to do it through WordPress. No go less. figure. Yeah, go figure. It, it's, it seemed that they had some flaws in the security design of their website. It seems their, uh, their blog, uh, main pages, and their forum were on the same web server. So by compromising WordPress, they were able to get, uh, they were able to pull their entire forum database. So the day after we learned about the attack, they said, everybody change your forum passwords. So yet again, uh, WordPress has failed the internet. Oh, it's kind of funny. Didn't they get hacked earlier in the year, too, on their forms? So this would be like their second hack on that on that form? Not aware. I, this is the first time I heard of a, really any attack made on the Mint team. And I think this comes shortly after the news that Linux Mint was the number one downloaded distro, the most used distro for desktop um, users, which is kind of interesting. You know, if you're going to be the most popular, you definitely want to have a little bit more better site security especially when you're supplying an operating system to people. So it's it's kind of, I, I do say a little bad on Clem's part for that. It, it does. It, it does show that the, they, they even admitted that they thought that, hey, we're not Windows. Maybe this shouldn't happen to us. We're still small, but there's always people out there just looking for something to jump on, and clearly someone did. And they, and they got a good target. I mean, what else better to go after Linux and... There's still no real, I guess, motive that's come out of this yet. All we know is that the ISO was uh, 
basically hacked and uh, swapped a URL and the reasoning, we don't know. Is there a method behind this? Is somebody trying to damage the Linux Mint reputation? Are they trying to send Clem a message saying, hey, you better beef up your website security if you're going to be uh, delivering distros to people? It just seems like script kitty work. It may have been sending somewhat of a message or some guys just wanting to beef up whatever botnet they already had in place. Uh, but it just goes to show, as Clem stated, hey, they're not Windows, but it doesn't mean they're invulnerable. At the end of the day, I can honestly say the website's faster than I've ever seen it. it seemed to work out better in the end. A lot of people sprung on to support them. It's really been interesting to witness. And in a recent blog post, he updated and say that the PHP team from uh, Automatic, the company that behind WordPress, uh, was re reaching out to them to see how they could help. They got Avast involved for um, analyzing the fake ISO, which is, you know, I'm actually kind of surprised. Avast is a pretty big company to be getting involved. And then EUK Host and AYK Solutions. Whatever, um, whenever they needed help, they were there for them. So that's really good that uh, the community really did step up when this happened. Uh, they didn't really damn it. They didn't say, oh, well, it happened. There were a few downloads, and I guess there's a few of them running out there still, but not enough to really help this the botnet uh, attack that I believe he was trying to go for, if he was going to go for that. Now that the news is out there, I mean, there it may be that one person that may have like seen the previous... Uh, not the previous, but the previous before podcast where we talked about getting started in Linux and we recommended Linux Mint. I feel bad if you're that one person downloaded it on uh, the 20th and uh, you never went back and heard any of this news and you're running that botnet. Sorry. If you were one of those rare one person, just go reformat, reinstall, and you should be good to go. I think uh, at the end, it really just kind of shows the resolve and community feeling that you can really only get with a Linux or open source project, how many people jumped on this to help them out. I can really look at it, look back on that and really nod my head in approval of all of it. it it's a shame that this is what, what that's the cause, that's what caused these people to kind of spring on and jump together for this, but it's st it still shows the greatest side of people in this community. And I don't believe the Linux Mint and Clem, he doesn't have like a big corporation like Clem canonical sitting behind the uh the the scenes working on this kind of stuff i believe he's almost pretty much a one-man show isn't he well uh i remember uh, reading the blog a few years ago that it just started with him uh part-time and then within a few years they had enough donations they had two full-time employees now that was a few years ago they may have a slightly bigger team now but it's as far as i know two full-time people and a lot of people jumped in and gave donations to clem so now he should be able to say hire a person to be on his team that will focus on his website security just in general because when it comes to downloading an operating system you got to keep your downloads secure so they can't be tampered with especially the website that's that's a big thing when you're dealing with what he's trying to distribute to people yeah when you have a project that popular you really should have a dedicated web guy unless if Clem himself could balance that great but it's it's always good to have a dedicated guy so what what have we learned from this i think we have learned that well we've learned that linux is a little bit vulnerable but not the operating the kernel itself what we saw here was a modification of one iso from this particular distribution and it'll help other distributions as well think about their own security when publishing their linux distro as well so in a way 
it's a good way because it's going to help everybody beef up their their security on the on the other ends too. So I'm going to move on to well previous Linux vulnerabilities in the past year, maybe two years, some of them. And some of you may have remembered the big one. This was the big, the Heartbleed bug, bug. Ooh, they got a creepy logo here of a heart just bleeding its, bleeding its blood out all over the place. Basically, it was an SSL TLS. With the first one where, because I was one of those people that came over to Linux saying, oh, there's no vulnerabilities, there's no malware. It's a perfectly, perfectly 100% secure operating system. And this was one of the first big news that kind of was a wake-up call for me saying, hmm, some of this stuff is a little old and some of it doesn't get updated very often. So things sit there in the code. And this was the first wake-up call for me to realize, wow, okay. So just like Windows, I guess I'm going to have to keep patching my operating system. It was kind of scary for a lot of people. And it was the, the one that said, okay, I'm going to have to protect myself. This isn't just, okay, install this operating system and just go with it. I vaguely remember Heartbeat. It feels like it was forever ago. Well, that was just 2014. Yeah. That seemed to scare a lot of the internet. I think it was Google who actually broke the leak on that because they themselves are were huge users of OpenSSL. They run Linux servers all over the place. Yeah, Google's big into... Sometimes they're a lot that... They're the ones that find a lot of these vulnerabilities. Now, granted, I haven't seen too many of these vulnerabilities that we're going over. I haven't heard too many big news where some big service has been hacked or taken down by some of these bugs. So keep that in mind as we move along. I'm just kind of going over some things to show that what packages you install in your uh, Linux distribution can be vulnerable from time to time. And you just need to be aware of that. And that can go for really any operating system, any platform. Uh, you'll always notice Adobe making tons of security updates to Adobe Flash. Uh, and that could be on any platform that uh, some bug will allow root access to a remote host, and that can happen on any platform. So it's not necessarily your, o your OS that's vulnerable. It could be a part of your browser. It could be a browser plugin. At least in that respect, you know that the security hole is fairly isolated. If it's just your browser compromised, the rest of your stuff's pretty safe for the most part. Yeah, I mean, you're not going to get too much data stolen or anything major like that. It's just something to be aware of, to realize that when you're dealing with data going across the, the internet, it's, in some areas, it, it's not safe. It's just, there's always man-in-the-middle attacks, and that isn't really your operating system in general. That's just, you got to be careful with how you work with the internet. One of the, we'll get into that in a little bit towards the end of the segment, called Shellshock. I kind of talked about this in the Heartbleed one a little bit. It was a backdoor where they could go through the bash prompt, a basic Linux package in every Linux, I think even Unix uh, operating systems as well, which allowed the remote user to just start executing code on the uh, operating system. Now this one, uh, I'm still not sure if they ever really came to 100% healing on this. I know they've been doing little patches here and there, but I think the core problem now has been completely resolved and this issue should be completely wiped out until until somebody finds another vulnerability in, in, in the bash prompt, which is probably the most important package connected to the kernel. I vaguely remember hearing about it, but it is pretty frightening when it's something that it's that is potentially that low level made vulnerable. 
and this is another one of those things I'm like, okay, all right. When this one came out, I'm like, all right. So now I've learned that if I'm using Linux, I'm definitely going to have to remember to update and patch my stuff. Got to do it. Just, just got to do it with any operating system. Keep them updated. And in the Arch world, it definitely makes it a little bit easier, but um, some of the other operating systems do get them a, the, the patches a little bit later than um, the more bleeding-edge distros. But that's something to keep in mind. Really, the best antivirus you can have is common sense. It, it kind of goes back to the Linux Mint thing. If you just know, say, your software sources, you could always end up with a compromised piece of software, not getting it from a trusted source, and falls into this, too. Sure, we're getting into bugs that could happen potentially anywhere, but common sense gets you a long way. All right, and now I'm going to move on to this one. This one was a recent one. I believe it, well, this article here is February 5th, 2016. And it is the Lib Graphite Font Processing Vulnerabilities. Uh, this one was one for font processing in Linux, Firefox, LibreOffice, and other major applications. The most severe vulnerability results in out-of-bounds read, which the attacker can use to achieve, you know, code execution. So basically they can brute force into your system. Um, by just overflowing it. It resulted in denial of service uh, situations. They basically wanted to ex exploit. The attacker simply needed to use and run Graphite-enabled applications that renders pages using specific uh, fonts on them. Since uh, Firefox versions 11 to 42, believe it or not, uh, directly supported Graphite. Uh, the attacker could easily compromise a server and then ser you know, serve specifically crafted font uh, where the user's renders page from the server. I find that kind of terrifying that it's something as simple as a font uh, can have code injection that can lead to a vulnerability like that. That's the last thing anyone suspects. We've seen plenty of uh, malicious fonts in the Windows world. This is the first I've heard of this on the Unix. I do know there uh, has been patches issued over this. Of course, if you're running any Firefox over 42, you're you're good to go. I, I checked my version number as we were talking about this because I, I I only recently updated to 4402. I, I stayed on the old version for probably a month, just ignoring the update reminders. <laughs> uh, so maybe I was a uh, attack waiting to happen, perhaps. Like I said, keep your stuff updated. There's a reason why there's updates out there. And in in the arch world, I'll see an update for like say, Open SSL, and I'm like, oh, they updated Open SSL, and then the next day or two, I found out that there's a, a big vulnerability in there, and I'm like, oh, okay, so that's what's going on here. So it's it's always a good idea. For me, I try to make sure to update on a weekly basis. Uh, some people do it monthly, and then there's people who have never updated since installation, which is kind of scary. And now we're gonna move on to the last little part of this segment, is how do you be safe on Linux or even other operating systems? And of course, as Mr. Macro here told us, it's just common sense. Don't go out there saying, you know, downloading from sites that have five download buttons on them. That's, that's usually a big red flag. One of the biggest ones is if you have a get a, get a password manager like LastPass or 1Password or um, KeyPass, and have a different random password for every site you use on a daily basis. This will help if, for example, like if the Linux Mint form got hacked and you use that same password on your bank account, you'd be screwed. Screwed. 
So you got to remember mainly to be safe. Use different passwords on every website. Another thing you can do is make sure to run. I know a lot of people are against this, but run an ad block. Add an ad blocker to your web browser. This also saves you. Also, it helps with performance on web browsing in general, especially on older machines. I've learned that when people say their internet's slow, installing a simple ad blocker speeds it up almost 75%, especially when you're running a dual core AMD processor. It definitely helps. I'm glad you mentioned ad blocker. I was about to mention the same thing. Uh, most of them do have, by default, malware domains blocked, several known sources blocked, and they update those constantly. You can have your feelings about Adblock, but if you like, if you want to support a website, you can always disable Adblock for that page. Still have support, but still keep yourself secure for the random stuff on the internet you find yourself on that you don't entirely trust. Uh, for example, if I don't know if anybody remembers the video Roy Goes Linux, I'm not sure, but every time I go over there to kind of check up on him and maintain the system, make sure it's updated, I go into the downloads folder and there's over 30 exe files in there. Good thing I didn't even install Wineform because they're not going to do anything. But I think that's funny that I don't know how he runs into it, but he finds them. And I do have an adblocker on there, and I don't like. How are you getting or finding these? I don't know. If it looks fishy, it might be. They call them phishing attacks for a reason. Stay away from you know. I know if you like to you know visit some board sites, just be careful to which ones you go to because yeah, they, they'll definitely give you some good. And uh, of course, any pirate to download website and if you're on Linux you're probably not going to be pirating software anyway since most of it's just handed to you here use my stuff here's you know I want you to enjoy it enjoy the code and you should be pretty much safe for the most part the only thing you got to worry about is when a database gets hacked and that's where we say change the passwords and change your passwords on, the, on your main things such as bank accounts email is probably one of your most important um, accounts to protect online because uh, compromised email could get somebody access to all your websites. Uh, they can start resetting passwords and take over everything. So change at least the email password every six months just, just to be on the safe side and keep refreshing it and make sure it's different um, and use a password generator if you have to. And if you don't trust software or LastPass or anything, there's a little thing called a notebook. Write it down, put it in a deposit, safe deposit box, and there you go. And also don't forget what's become very popular the last few years is two-factor authentication. Someone might remotely be able to reset your password, but often this two-factor authentication depends on you having physical access to your phone to, say, give a confirmation code. If you really want to keep your data safe, if you really want to protect your email account, that is a great way to go. It brings it up every time your the IP address trying to access your accounts change. It's excellent. Oh yeah, Gmail is really really good for that. As far as Hotmail and Outlook.com, I'm not too sure because I don't use those services. Trust those as far as I can throw them. Yeah, we know, some of us, uh, especially me, being super Microsoft paranoid. After what I've heard they've done to Windows 10, you might as well say Windows 10 is just a big piece of malware. <laughs> in itself if it's a piece of hardware it can be broken into and if it's a piece of software it can be hacked it doesn't matter and I'm not trying to scare anybody from Linux or anything else Linux yes you're gonna be a little safer from these things but in the end anything is hackable and I remember my dad he says is Linux safe is it really you know virus free and I looked at him and said anything could be hacked dad and that was my response he says oh okay 
he gets it. And because Linux on the desktop is growing, it is going to become a larger target in the future. I mean, it already is in the server end of things. I mean, we just don't see that because most of us don't run servers or pay attention to the news on it, um, on most servers, unless it's a service that we use. And with that, Linux is going to be pretty safe for you. And that ends this segment. And welcome to the gaming segment. We're going to talk about games uh, that we've been playing on Linux. And a little bit more on this uh, Vulcan. Yeah, they exist. I knew they always existed. But they're coming. And they're coming to your a graphics card near you. <laughs> One game that I just downloaded on Steam. And I've been pretty addicted to this game. It is harder than crap. This thing is a hard game. And that is Shovel Knight. Shovel Knight is kind of an old school uh, side um, side scrolling platform. Kind of has an 8-bit graphics feel to it. Kind of reminds me of the DuckTales game from the NES. The way he bounces with that shovel. You gain treasures. You find items. You try to get him enough money to buy more items and health and stuff like that. It's a very... Uh, I'm surprised how many platforms they got it on. It's on Wii U, 3DS, PS4, PS3, PS Vita, Xbox Ones, Windows, Macs, and last but not least, Linux. Have you tried this game? I have tried this game. I got this about two years ago for my uh, 3DS. And I love it. it it's a real... They, they managed to nail the nostalgia feel. Uh, has a ton of pop culture references. It's corny but it really does justice to the, the old platform style of gaming. And in my personal opinion, the soundtrack is quite badass. Oh yeah, I like it as well. It's got a very, and I think, yeah, it started originally on Kickstarter. It did, yeah. And one thing I found really interesting, um, this is the only indie game and non-Nintendo game to actually get its own Nintendo Amiibo. Oh yeah, that's right. And I, did they, were they going to put them in a Smash too? A recent um, Smash Bros. I, I don't know. I heard. I think I heard I rumors so. about it. I don't know if they ever released the information on the voting that they did for the characters they were going to implement. I don't know how Cloud got in there, but uh, well, there's a universe crossing over there. But yeah, Shovel Knight. It is a lot of fun. I can't believe I put this one off for as long as I have until recently. I wish I would have played this one sooner because. It is just an addicting, time-wasting fun. I love it. I wish I was a good enough gamer to beat it. I haven't beaten it yet, but I'm getting very close. I'm very, very close. I think I'm down to like the last four levels. And that was Shovel Knight, a fun, side-scrolling 8-bit adventure. Uh, next, uh, this suggestion came in from Macro over here. It's called Hurt World. I don't know anything about this game. I don't even think I've ever played it before. So I'm guessing you're going to give me an earful and, and, and get me to want to download this sucker. I don't know if I can talk you into that, but I'll definitely give it a shot. It's a multiplayer online survival game. If you've ever heard of Rust, this is done in a very similar style. A lot of people haven't heard of it because it only came out in November. It's on early access on Steam. Uh, but like Rust, uh, you're basically sent out straight into the environment, completely naked, animals, wilderness trying to gather resources and survive. It's done in a uh, really interesting cel-shaded graphical style, so if you're a fan of Chief Fortress 2, you might be a fan of this for that reason alone. 
Uh, it has a very heavy emphasis on player versus environment. You have to find and build clothing as soon as possible or else you'll freeze overnight. You'll have to build fires. Just keep yourself completely isolated because there's a lot of uh, random events in the world, whether it's monsters, uh, weather, dust storms, that can leave your character incredibly vulnerable. So not only is the world hell, players are hell. So if you like a challenging multiplayer game, multiplayer survival game, it definitely gets my recommendation. You know, now that I, I kind of was looking here at this page and I'm like, wait a minute, I think I've seen um, some gaming YouTube channel, channels playing this. I, I know what it is now. It's like, oh, okay, I know what the game this is. I've seen some videos on it. And it definitely does look a, really, really interesting. Yeah, the game it's most compared to is Rust. Rust sort of uh, pioneered the online survival genre, at least after DayZ. Uh, this game has one thing that Rust has been promising for a few years and hasn't done yet. It has vehicles. It has ATVs and dune buggies. It is extremely fun. You can just load up with your friends, all three of you on a dune buggy, and almost do Mad Max style stuff. It's quite fun. And that has been Hurt World. Check it out, download it, and play it. You might already be. So whatever that goes, you might need a new graphics engine behind all that. And here we are. Vulcan is here. You know, it, you know, it, it, it's a good planet, right? Now with Vulcan, they're bringing in a whole new modern GPU. API. API, thank you. OpenGL and DirectX alternative. Which, as we know, are a little old and really need to go. Because DirectX isn't really multi-platform. But I think OpenGL is, but it's just old. Very old. And the group that was actually in charge of maintaining OpenGL, the Kronos Group, are actually the people who developed Vulkan. So, the thing about OpenGL, it's... You ask any real game developer, they'll tell you it's a challenge to develop for. Not only that, it just does not perform as well as DirectX. Uh, depending on the game and your hardware, your frame rate might be between 10 to 33%, about a third slower than that game would be on Windows. And what this does is brings up it's not even a successor to OpenGL, but they consider it, uh, they codename for it was GL Next, but they really are considering a true successor to that, uh, and that it completely cuts out the middleman, the CPU, in terms of rendering, and it could very well close the performance gap between Linux and Windows, which hopefully will bring a lot more people over to Linux gaming. That's true, and that's something we need. And just as game developers need to realize, it's a multi-platform world. You know, we got all of our iDevices, our Android devices, our Windows devices, our Linux boxes, uh, Steam machines, gaming consoles. There needs to be a good standard for all of us, I mean, for developers to use to get their games multi-platform. Because I think we're living in an age now where one console or one type of operating system doesn't rule them all. There's so many diversions and options out there. People are going to choose what, what they want to choose. Or some of them may choose it just because of the, their finances. You know, they get a cheap phone, get the cheaper gaming console, you name it. And for a new API to come out and put together something that will work on all these platforms will allow a developer to say, hey, when they go to release their game, it goes out to all the operating systems and devices. I'm really excited to see where this goes and I don't know do they have any games out for this uh, using Vulcan yet? Is this is this game is actively used now? 
There is currently only one game available, uh, and it's on Steam multi-platform, and that is the Talos Principle. That was the first game uh, to actively support and use Vulcan, but there are a lot more on the way. Uh, several game engine developers, uh, Unity, Unreal Engine, and Valve, and even Frostbite with EA, have all said that they will support this as soon as possible. And all of the all of those engines I just mentioned, with the exception of Frostbite, because that's EA and they like using their own platform, uh, should be going multi-platform very, very soon. And what's more, you mentioned people say buying cheap phones, cheap hardware. The beauty of Vulkan is, even on Intel integrated graphics, they've been able to demonstrate it really improves performance. They, uh, Valve, who's uh, probably the biggest company who has been behind Vulkan and supporting Vulkan, uh, demoed uh, Dota 2, one of the most popular MOBA games in the world, running on an Intel integrated graphics card. And it was running pretty well, much to everyone's surprise. So it's really closing the gap for everybody, for people with cheaper hardware or more expensive hardware. Which is what we need, especially with uh, the Steam box and what, what Valve is trying to do with the whole Steam. I think they're to the point now, they're like the top game, I guess you would say app store for games that I know of. I don't even think the Google Play Store has as much as they do. They just keep growing and growing and growing and definitely we you know if they're going to release a the system they definitely want to be able to transfer you know get all the games over there i'm sure that's their goal and, and, and every day more and more games are being added to the library and with vulcan i believe we're going to start seeing some new triple a titles we won't have to wait or try to put it in wine or hack it or anything like that we will get it on day one release so when gta 6 comes out hopefully they use this api and we can be able to play GTA 6 on its launch date whenever it comes. How do you expect me to focus on a podcast when you throw out something like GTA 6 and I'm trying to picture in my mind what that's going to be like? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what's more is uh, my uh, I have a NVIDIA Shield TV. They actually added Vulcan support to that. They waited to uh, upgrade that to uh, Android 6 Lollipop almost six months after uh, other Android TV devices uh already upgraded that version of uh, Android TV just so they could have Vulkan support day one. Even though there are no software titles for it, they just wanted to do it just to say they have that support, people can start developing for that immediately. It's a bold new future where no man has gone before with our graphics cards. Illogical. Live long and game prosper. That has been Vulkan and that ends our gaming segment everybody. hack the Raspberry Pi side next. They call it a Model B, but they never had a Model A, did they? They did. Um, the Model A's normally had, say, one less USB port and didn't have the Ethernet jack. Oh, okay. And then they just took that up to a whole other level and, uh, oh, let's have the Zero. It doesn't have any of those. <laughs> Which I still can't get my hands on that thing. Really? Every time I go to the sites to buy, down, <clears throat> buy them, they're all sold out. I haven't checked. Was it you? Was it you who were telling me that some of those are going for one to two hundred dollars on eBay? Yeah. And welcome to the random discussion. We're just going to talk randomly. We get. To, uh, I kind of want to talk about a little bit about this Raspberry Pi three. I also want to talk about future Japan trip and a little bit on what's going to go on with the channel during this awkward period. But for now, let's go ahead and take a look at this baby, the Raspberry Pi 
3 Model B. And compared to the old model, of course they're bumping up the, the CPU speed. Looks like they're going 64-bit ARM 8 um, CPU at 1.2 gigahertz. Ooh, getting up there. It's starting to crank up a little bit, but I'd like to see, I don't know, like 2 gigahertz, you know, maybe 6 cores in that, you know. Um, which I guess the features that are really people are excited about is the built-in wireless LAN and Bluetooth. What I'm going to do with this, I did get one on order. Luckily, I was able to get in on this one versus the Raspberry Pi Zero, which still can't get my hands on. I was able to get one. It's going to be shipped to me. And I think I'm, what I'm going to do is upgrade the workstation project that I had before to this new version and see if my experience with it is a little better. Uh, it looks like they do have a little bit of a... 3D graphics core, video, video core. Did they have that in the last one? Is this the same? It is the same yeah. graphics chip they've used since the very first Pi. Come on, Raspberry Pi. Please give us a new one. They give a very good reason for why they do that. It's still incredibly opened. I guess that makes sense. And there's another competing board that just recently is getting released and shipped that I also coming in the mail sometime soon. Hopefully, I, I want to get it before I go to Japan, and that is the Pine 64. It's exactly what I'm looking for to make a mini workstation. And a lot of people are like, okay, Anthony, why are you trying to make these mini workstations? What's your goal? My goal is I do have a side business working on computers. I would like to have a little system that I could build, probably even be able to come up with my own custom little 3D uh, cases for them that mark my brand and sell these computers to people who just want to do some web browsing, check some email, do a little shopping on Amazon, people who don't like to tinker with computers. And I think the Pine 64 is going to be that one. The plan when I get this sucker in the mail is I'm going to set it up and give it to stepmom and say, use this for a couple of weeks and then I'll come back and we'll get her feedback on what she thinks of what it was like computing on it. Because all she does is Facebook. I think a mini machine like that would be perfect for her. Same thing as like Roy. All he does is just web browsing and email checking, a lot of Amazon shopping. Another perfect fit. Would you give this to Grandma? You know, the Pine 64 or any of these mini boards? Oh, I don't know if I'd give it to Grandma, but if Grandma can find the browser on it, hey, it might do everything she wants. Yeah, he probably got a good point there. Um, I actually gave my Grandma a computer. She said take it back. She didn't want it. It was too <laughs> much. So it's back to sending letters for her. Which is kind of cool. I still like getting letters and cards from Grandma. She's the only one that still does it. <laughs> Everyone else is happy birthday on your Facebook page. At least Grandma still sends me letters <laughs> that actually have substance to them. Oh, the good old days. Sometimes we have technology has taken us far from where we used to be. It's good in some ways, but sometimes I still like my card in the mail every birthday. You can always count on someone being a few decades behind, and you got to appreciate that. Kind of makes you wish you could do it yourself. Yeah, for me, it's, it's, it's of course, time scheduling. Got to go buy the card, write on the card, write a message in there, write on the envelope, oh, put the address on it, seal the envelope, lick a stamp on it, take it down to the mailbox down the street. But you can have the satisfaction of saying you went through all that trouble for the card. Exactly. Your grandma will always be able to hold that over you. So I think I'm going to skip uh, getting this model of the Raspberry Pi. Wi-Fi, The Verge made a really great case for it. They thought of classroom situations where uh, 
they could just install a single wireless access point in a classroom and instead of running a few dozen ethernet cables, they just connect them all up via Wi-Fi. And for that situation, that's fantastic. Uh, my roommate was wanting to get uh, Raspberry, uh, a few extra Raspberry Pis to set up a cheap little surveillance system. And this would save us having to run extra ethernet cables. We could just run it over the Wi-Fi. Sure, we could just as easily buy the $5 Wi-Fi dongle, but this, say, this really saves you the trouble. But like you, I'm itching for something with a little more oomph to it, something with a little more RAM, and that is definitely where the Pine 64 comes in. It seems like much better bang for buck for the kind of application at least I'm going for. Of course, the Raspberry Pi will always be there with a tremendous amount of community support. Uh, it's really good for Arduino-type integrated projects, but us just trying to tinker around with microcomputers, you really don't have much to lose uh, buying these things because they're so cheap. Even if you don't end up having a legitimate use, it's very cheap and you can have fun with it. For me, I'm also in that same boat. Raspberry Pi is going to be, well, the grant, it's going to be the biggest, everyone who's into these uh, microboard computers, it's going to go be the go-to one. They've got the name, they've coined it, but there are so many coming up in the background that are going to change the whole world on what us hardcore geeks are going to do with them. Build drones out of them. I wish I could get into some of those projects. Some of those people, they build drones with these things. You know, a whole auto home automation system. A little over my head at the moment, but I would like to definitely try some of that stuff. I too envy people with that level of creativity. And I think it's one of those things, I'm going to keep playing with these little things. I love them. It's a, it's a great idea. And it's getting to the point now, I could see this being like the wife's computer, media center computer. They won't replace, I'm one of those people that say, the desktop PC is not going anywhere. A lot of people, a lot of podcasts, and a lot of tech people are saying the desktop is going to die. It's not going to die. There's too many um, of us who edit videos, um, play games, do a lot of hardcore computing that the desktop is not going to die, at least not for a long time, because there is still a lot of us that need that power. So it ain't going nowhere. It might be for the average Joe who doesn't do hardcore gaming or edit videos or podcasts or streaming or any of that stuff. But for the, you know, for the average dude, yeah, tablets, small computers are going to be for them. But the desktop it's not going anywhere anytime soon. I don't think the desktop's really going anywhere either. Uh, look at Steam's numbers. They're constantly on the rise, it, at least in terms of PC gaming alone. That should be a, that should be a hint that there's almost an ever-growing number of enthusiasts like us. Yeah, no kidding. Before we wind up this random segment, I need to kind of mention that, yes, unexpectedly and out of nowhere, Japan Trip Chapter 2 is happening this month. Hopefully we'll be able to make it there for the Sakura season where we get to see the cherry blossoms. I really, really want to get some good pictures and some good video of them. Uh, from what I understand, they are might happen a little bit earlier, but they normally happen towards the last week of March. We will be there that week, and that's the one that I'm hoping to catch some uh, Sakura action and maybe catch some uh, the YouTube gathering in Tokyo. That's We're going to try to do that. It's just that timing is an issue when it comes to this kind of thing. But if it doesn't, or we don't make it, we're still going to have fun anyways. Which brings me up to my next point. For that time, I was planning on trying to do extra videos to keep caught up. 
to give people something to watch while I'm gone. But unfortunately, my life has been so hectic and I don't want to just rush content together that I have made the decision that during this time, I'm going to be on vacation. So it's going to be a period of about three weeks. There will be no content on the channel. I'll probably upload a short little video, kind of maybe I'll just upload this part from the podcast to my channel just before the trip. So people aren't like, uh, what happened? Are you dead? Are you alive? What's going on? Because you know what? It's going to be vacation time and I want to enjoy myself and I don't want to have to worry about uploading videos or if my scheduled videos are going live. I'm just going to take a break. I'm just going to take a break because I need it. And when I get back, there'll be some more Japan vlogs to watch. I'm still on that hunt for the strange piece of tech, which I never found in the last adventure. So I've got to complete that mission and find the weirdest piece of tech in Japan. There has been a few requests on what people wanted to see me do in Japan. But like I said, uh, these Japan trips have been family funded. So most of it is what the family is going to show me or what we're going to do. I am going to try to adventure off a little bit on this one. I did kind of request that, like, maybe I'd like to stay in Osaka for a longer period of time because I'd like to walk around and explore and check things out instead of, like, last trip where we went all over the country. And it felt like half of our trip was going to another location. There was always a half a day or more of traveling between these events. And I just want to stay in one area and just explore and have more Japan time. Oh, I would absolutely love to see cherry blossoms sometime in my life. That's gotta be that. Just some of your footage. That just seemed like really beautiful country, especially that uh, mountain you went on with the bears. I'm trying to remember where that was. That that is the place I definitely want to visit. That with the uh, hot springs too. That that seems like something I definitely got to see sometime in my life. That was one of those places. We were going up to up north, and I'm like. I want to go to a hot spring, but I wanted to go to one where you can get the private Osen versus the separate the male and the female because the wife and I wanted to be together. I, I just wasn't comfortable with the fact. I'm sure she wasn't. No, she's used to it, actually. What am I saying? She's probably not too worried about it, but she would be alone. with a, For me, I'd be alone with a bunch of schlongs. I'm just not comfortable with that. I'd rather be with the wife. I understand it's Japanese culture, but I guess the way we were raised, I just don't want to go bathe with a bunch of men. Hey, hey, they'll get your back for you. Hoi, need the back wash you. I guess, I guess I can throw, since we're in the random segment, I can throw this in there. When we did do the public bath at the beginning of the trip with the family, uh, my uncle-in-law, first time we walk into that place, he grabs a uh, kind of like a bucket or something and fills it up with water, and then he dumps it on his, uh, his junk and then starts swishing his junk around in the water and he says, wash, you wash, wash. This isn't any more awkward than it has to be, bud. Everybody <laughs> so, actually from there is going to watch this and think, what is wrong with these guys? What's weird about that? We wash it all the time that way. A- at least he put emphasis on the key area. Yeah, it is the most dirtiest part of the body, right? Next to your mouth and your... your... Where are we going with this? <laughs> we have definitely gone off into the random of randomness there so with that i'm cutting it off that's the end of the random discussion i'm ending the segment here and let's move on to the feedback and welcome to the feedback segment where you feed us back and today's first feedback comes in here from 
effect to zero. Sweet video. Okay, so there are any resources out there to help me learn the commands in the terminal? That's what scares me about most of Linux. Not being able to run just an .exe file and install is scaring me away. But I really want to be a Linux guy after watching all your stuff. And I went in to go and reply to him and explain to him, yeah, Linux does not have .exe files that we're used to if you're using Windows. I don't even think Macs do. I think they got a whole different system as well. In most uh, Linux distributions, especially a Debian base, there is a, a .deb file that you can like open up and usually in Ubuntu it'll open the Ubuntu Software Center or if you have any other type of SimPack or package manager installed by the operating system by default, it'll help guide you along with the install. And what's really neat, even with the as bad as the Ubuntu Software Center is, it will allow you to just install by just clicking install after you open the dev file. You enter your password and it does everything for you. There's none of this, next, next, selected directory, agree to this, click next, and so forth and so forth. So basically installation is a lot easier and don't be afraid of that command line. Uh, it's simple as doing a sudo apt get install and the name of the app. And as again, ask you for the password, confirm yes or no, and is done. There's no, it's not really as complicated as you think it is. If anything, I think it's a lot easier than it was in Windows. What do you think? Any, any advice you would give to somebody who's who's saying, I, you know, they're worried about installing software on Linux? I, I like that the guy wants to be a Linux guy. And, and it sounds like he kind of wants to go in head first, but is afraid to. And I have just a few things to say to that. First, uh, for the last decade or so, you really hardly have to touch the terminal at all. At least on most Debian based distros, uh, Mint or Ubuntu, you don't really have to touch the terminal at all. It is all very easy, very graphical, but the option is still there to get your hands dirty with the terminal. And the best recommendation I have for that is uh, put a, build your own virtual machine or uh, use a virtual box. Just install a Linux to show you want to try out on that. Uh, you can save a backup of that VM. Uh, so you have no worries about corrupting it, say formatting your main home directory or some root directory, uh, or even just a live USB boot session for Linux. It's so easy to just try these things out without any repercussions. Yeah, there's no, especially I'd say the live CD is the best one because once you're done, everything's resetted again. You go back to where it was and like you never touch the computer. That's, that's a really good recommendation. And then I did, after my reply to him, he did come back and say, yeah, I tried it, but then he had an issue installing a piece of software, did the research, and the guy's telling him to enter a command line. Well, yeah, they, you do run into that, but really, like he was just saying, you couldn't get away with it without running the command line, except for some of the more hardcore operating systems, such as Arch Gen 2, and just, I believe, uh, I'm not sure, I've never used the main Debian, but I believe you still have to use a little terminal to get it running. But once you, even in Arch, you can install, say, like, <clears throat> a package manager and eventually make the operating system where you'd never touch the terminal and eventually you start getting a little rusty because you're just not in there as, as much as you used to be. It was like that in the beginning of my arch life. I was in that command line all the time. Now I'm not even touching it. I'm using the computer. Even if you end up in the command line just needing to do something in the terminal, do like any other big IT guy does and Google the living crap out of the issue. It is hard to find an issue that you cannot find an answer on Google for, especially for Linux. Oh yeah, I've been in that boat many times. 
And sometimes I am one of those people that just says, I'll take the leap of faith, copy and paste that sucker in there and see what happens. That's how you learn. And if it asks you for a password for your uh, pseudo permissions, then go back, press the up key, kind of look up uh, some, what the command is and what it does. If it does, you want to question what it's going to do. But for the most part, I have yet to run into what they call the tr you know the troll commands that some people have said are out there. I personally, as a Linux user now for over two years, have never run into a troll command from looking for help. Knock on wood. Because even in Ubuntu, from what I understand, I was watching a video on it, and I think they tried to use the RF remove force on the root. And I guess it, there's there's protection on um, most distributions that won't even let you do it anymore. We're not going to say most distros are stupid proof, but they're they're just about getting there. It, it, it's kind of hard to screw up. Yeah, I mean, uh, like an Arch system or any of those. Yeah, they're not stupid proof, but Ubuntu and the Debian line, they're they're definitely starting to stupid proof it. If you really want to mess up the machine, you're just going to have to go in there and really... You're going to have to mess it up. You're going to have to do some work to mess it up, which is a good thing. Worst case scenario, you somehow manage to wipe out your home directory. But most of the time, as long as you still have access to your home directory or you have a backup drive with anything important, really quick to reinstall and get your Linux box going up and getting back up and going again. So don't be scared. Like I said, put it on a virtual machine. Put it on a dumb box. Put it in a live environment. Play with it. Break it. Try to break it. That's how you learn it. Before you Trial know it, you're, you're not going to be you're like, okay, this is not what I thought it was. This next comment came in from Anthony Bendedo. I am tired of Windows and want to try Linux, but I do do a lot of work in AutoCAD, Word, and Excel. Will I be able to find software on Linux to work with these files? I need to get away from Windows, but don't know much about Linux. I don't even know where to start, which Linux operating system to use. Can I get some direction on where to go to get some info? And I need to get started. Um, previously, we did do a podcast on getting started in Linux. I would suggest trying out any operating system. Ubuntu, you kind of cringe a little bit. <laughs> Linux Mint, we'll give them the benefit about. This isn't going to happen anytime soon. So go ahead, try out one of those Linux distros. And most of them include your office software, such as your Excel, not really Excel, but they call it calculator in LibreOffice, and that'll give you your Word and your spreadsheet. So those are already built into most Linux distros. Now, I'm not a big AutoCAD user, but here's what you do. This is how I found software that I liked. Like, for example, I used uh, PaintShop Pro to make my thumbnails for my videos. I tried GIMP, I tried Krita, and I think it was Inkscape. I tried those three programs. I played with them. Um, I even Googled alternatives to Photoshop and PaintShop and those programs came up. So that's where you want to start. Google alternatives in Linux for AutoCAD. Download as many versions as you can find. Play with them and find out what you like the best. Like in my image uh, editing situation, I ended up liking GIMP the most and stuck with that one. And then when I was done, I just went ahead and uninstalled the other two programs and went on from there. So if you have, or anybody, if you have a specialized software that you do something on, Google research an alternative for it, download those alternatives, play with them, find out what, what functions and works for you, and then once you find that one, learn it, grow with it, and before you know it, you'll be stuck with it, and I know some people don't wanna learn a new software. I was in the same boat coming from the Premiere world to Lightworks, 
there was that fight inside. I already know how to do this. Why do I have to learn something new? But once I did learn it, I'm glad I did. And same thing with Gimp. I'm like, I can't find the options where I'm normally able to find them. Because for me, all I need to do is have a background, a picture for my thumbnail, add some text with some shadow and outline. That's it. And it took me a while to figure out how to do those things in that program. Granted, they're not the same way as like, you know, paint shop where you just click on a menu option and go to add an outline. You know, in GIMP, it was under copy the layer to path and put the path into a new layer and then create the outside image and drop the layer. It's a little bit more different way of doing things, but I was able to find out a way to do it and learn it. And now I'm to the point where when it comes to making the thumbnails, I cracked those suckers out in a couple of minutes. Try different software. You're just going to have to accept the fact that unless AutoCAD comes to Linux, you're going to have to use some alternative and you're going to have to learn some alternatives and set some time to do that. Load it up in a virtual machine or like we said before, throw it in a live environment and just play with it while you're using your other AutoCAD and try to find options that are similar to what you're using. You will be an expert at what you're doing. Do you have any advice for somebody who is looking for an alternative software to what they do? The Microsoft Office Word and Excel thing is what's brought up to me the most when uh, people who aren't necessarily, say, computer literate, ask me about switching to Linux. And uh, what has been a big barrier for a lot of them is, uh, and I've noticed this too, is if you're trying, if, if you're using it on a work computer and you actually absolutely have to be able to work with, say, DocX and Excel spreadsheet files, LibreOffice, some of the open source solutions, do tend to break the formatting. Uh, just as similarly, Microsoft Office doesn't always tend to read uh, open document formatting properly. Workarounds, I would say for that is run Windows in a virtual machine. You can put it in seamless mode to where it feels like you're still, where it feels like you're still running it as a Linux application, but it's just kind of seamlessly built into your tray in Linux. Or cloud solutions. You can, if you really need it for professional reasons, say Microsoft Office, you can always get Office 365. If you're doing this for work, your work might already have licensing for Office 365. It does have a monthly or yearly fee, nine, 10 bucks a month. But if you absolutely need it professionally, there's one solution for you. Um, as for AutoCAD, I, I did do some looking around and there are some solutions that will actually read the project files for AutoCAD. There's FreeCAD and BRLCAD that I can't confirm it because I haven't worked for any CAD stuff for quite a long time. They may very well work with uh, AutoCAD as you want it, or again, run it in a virtual machine or try AutoCAD's cloud solutions. Yeah, above above all, just look for alternatives. They may work out for you, they may not. You may just have to your virtual machine on top of your Linux box. But like Anthony said, it's really all about just getting out there and trying alternatives. And that brings us to the end of this feedback segment. Let's go ahead and wind down the show, shall we? And that brings us to the end of this Geeking Off podcast. I hope you enjoyed, I hope you come again, and I would like to thank all the listeners for listening and taking the time to listen to the podcast and all the videos on my YouTube channel. Thank you guys. Your support, just liking the video, is just all I need. And if you are curious on what videos are coming out in the future, this is my website. Here's the current schedule. We've got a vlog up right now. We also are changing the voting on the website. Um, and that is going for this particular topic, which is 
Linux a safe OS? Yes or no? So go ahead, submit a vote. And the previous voting, it looks like Linux won by astounding 73 votes, whipping out Windows at a smeegee 14 votes, BSD at 8, and Mac OS Linux at 11. A lot of people voted for Linux in the last poll. So go ahead and join on this poll and we'll talk about the results on the next one. So far it looks like it's got one vote. And in the video schedule, um, this is of course gonna be subject to change here in the next day or so because I gotta rearrange things to take my three weeks off from making content. So I've gotta adjust this. So there will be, you'll know when I'll come back and what videos are planning. A lot of people are asking me about that Linux um, server rack for the PFSense. It's coming, it's just a matter of time and finances and with this vacation coming up, can't do it right now. But it is scheduled for May 5th, it is projected future, but it'll probably be pushed somewhere in the middle of May now because of the vacation. And remember to check us out at geekingoffpodcast.com and subscribe to our RS feed or on iTunes. And if you like, you can go ahead and send us feedback at feedback at geekingoffpodcast.com. And if you want to throw us a dollar, just a dollar, and support the cause, you can go ahead and become a Patreon on our Patreon site. Yeah, just go ahead. I'm not going to e-beg any more than that. If you want to support us, go ahead. Throw us a buck on Patreon. And I'm going to sign off there. Anything you want to say, Macro, for the end closing? Oh, thank you very much for having me. You're welcome. It's been fun. It was fun. So with that, guys, this has been Anthony from Anthware. And from this time and every time on, folks, keep on clicking. Anthony from Anthware, signing off. Come on, let's start it.